Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. The summer of my, the summer after my 19th birthday, we were living in Southern California in North LA County in this city called Lancaster, and uh, I had uh, gotten a job with one of the big national real estate firms, and it was my first job with a big company, and they tell you how you start selling real estate, and one of the things that you do every single day is you pick a neighborhood, you go door to door, you knock on doors, and talk to people. Well, one morning, I uh, was going out to do my walking through the neighborhoods, and this is the summer in the high desert, so in the afternoon, it gets to be 90, 95 degrees, and of course, because I'm a professional, I'm wearing a suit and a tie, and uh, in the morning, I decided I had to run a couple of errands, went to the bank, went to the post office, and as I was going to park in the post office, there was a lady, she was pulling out of her space, And so I was over here on the other lane with my left turn signal going so that I was going to be able to take her parking space. And uh, other cars had piled up behind me and were waiting for this lady to come out so that I could take her parking space. Well, it took her a minute to get all of that stuff processed. Meanwhile, on my right, parked in one of the slots, was a big, huge Ford Crown Victoria, one of the older ones. And it had its reverse lights on, and clearly the guy starts edging out because he wants to get out, but I'm blocking his way. And I can't do anything because my parking space, which is the first parking space, which if you guys know me, you know I wait for that first parking space right by the place, right? And I can't back up because there's a car already behind me. So this guy in the big white Crown Victoria is getting annoyed at me He puts it into park, he gets out of his car, and he walks over to where I am. Now, this was an older gentleman. He was wearing jean coveralls and a long-sleeve white T-shirt, no hair. And he's looking at me going, you know, signaling for me to leave. And I look at him, and I was 19, so I was a little annoyed at this gentleman who clearly couldn't see that I had a perfect parking space. So I pointed at the parking space. And he looked at me and he said, which meant, if you're listening to us online or or you're not going to know what I did, but I was pointing in other directions. And he wanted me to get out. And I just shook my head. And I thought he was going to do something, but he didn't. He got back into his car and and waited, and I got my parking space, and he backed out, and he left. Um, He clearly wasn't having a a good day with me blocking him in and keeping him there. So I just brushed it off, went to the post office, went back into the neighborhood where I was going to go and walk and knock on doors, and I started knocking on doors, and now it's really, really hot because it's like 1.30 in the afternoon, and I'm wearing a coat and tie, and I'm starting to sweat. Fortunately, as since a child, I always carry one of these, so I'm patting myself, walking, finally get to the house that I know is going to be the last house, the house where I hope someone is going to 
have a little pity and mercy on me and invite, them into, invite me into their homes so that I can give them a market analysis of their property. I open the little metal gate, I walk up the three steps, I ring the doorbell, and I'm thinking, this is going to be the house. And who should answer the door? <laughs> who should answer the door but my friend in the jean coveralls, the long sleeve white t-shirt, and no hair. And I just looked at him, and I gave up. I didn't say a word. I turned around, and I walked right back out. I was done for the day. And I just said, okay. And, and, and since then, I've always remembered that. I've always remembered to be careful, to be nice to people when you're driving around, because you never know where, the, where you're going to run into them at work. Now, I know that all of us who've ever worked a job, or two, or five, have work stories, and we could be here for a couple of days talking about our funny work stories. And this whole series has been about that. We, we're wrapping up today our series, and we've called it Peace at Work, Peace of Work. And it's not peace like a little piece, it's peace as in peace. The, it comes from the, this Jewish word that means shalom, and shalom has this, this meaning of nothing missing, nothing broken. And so for these three weeks that we've been together, we've been talking about how can we get that shalom that we need in our work, and how can we bring it to our work. And so we started in the first week by seeing that work matters to God. And we looked at how in paradise that God created, there was work. And in the paradise restored, there's going to be work. And so part of God's plan really is for us to work. And all of us have gotten a glimpse of that. We've all done something, a project, a day at work that we've had where we've, we've come away with this sense of accomplishment, this sense of fulfillment, this sense that, that we've done something, that, we, that it meant something to us. And that is not something that, is, that comes selfishly. It is something that's inside us because we were created for work. In the next week, what we found out was that your work matters to God. Whatever it is that you do, that in God's word, it tells us that there is no separation between the secular and the spiritual. That whatever it is that you do, God is able to bless you, your family, but he is also able to bless the world with whatever your work is. So if you are, if you are delivering the mail, then you are delivering hope, delivering communication to people. If you are serving food in a restaurant, God is feeding people through you. If you are driving a truck, God may be bringing blankets and, 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 and warmth, or he may be bringing food. No matter what you do, no matter what your work is, your work matters to God because through your work is how God is able to bless the world. And then last week, we saw that not only does work matter to God, and not only does your work matter to God, but your workplace matters to God. The place where you work matters to God. And so how you behave in your workplace matters to God. And uh, we talked about this, this idea of second mile service and how, how going the extra mile is actually something that was taught first by Jesus and if you ask most people about it today, they, they wouldn't know that that's where it came from. And so what we, what we saw is that in doing that, what God is saying to us is that we are supposed to do more than we are expected to do at work. 
We're supposed to do so much more that when people see how we work, that it will shock them. And that somehow they will be able to, to, to see your hard work, your work ethic, the things that you do, your performance, and connect that with your love for God. And so we talked about what the golden rule of work was. And the golden rule of work is simple. It says, work unto others as you would have them work unto you. So whatever it is you do, do that unto other people as you would have other people do that unto you. Because your workplace matters to God. And the number one reason that your workplace matters to God is that the people that you work with matter to God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The people you work with matter to God. In fact, they matter to God so much that he put you there in order to be a blessing to them and in order to be able to reach them. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at something the Apostle Paul wrote. It's a short little passage in Scripture. It was a letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, and it was a brand new church. It was not a church of Jewish people. It was a church of Gentiles. It was a church of people who had no perspective of who God was. And it was a brand new church. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at what Paul said, and we're going to specifically apply it to our workplace and to the people that we work with. And at the end, what we're going to do as we wrap up this series is I'm going to give you five easy techniques that you can use today, tomorrow, when you start work again, in order to bring that peace, that shalom to work. Five practical steps that you can use. Okay, so here we are, and I want to give you a little bit of backdrop. Paul is in prison. He's in prison, and there is this church in Colossae, and he's writing a letter to them. And he's writing it out by hand, and it's going to be delivered to them by messenger. And the church in Colossae is basically a house church. In fact, if you were here with us last week, or actually two weeks ago, then we were talking about how this particular letter was written as a household code. Because in that time and in that culture, every household had a code of conduct. And Paul was writing to this household, to this house church, and giving them a code of conduct. And this is what he says. We're in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, if you want to follow along with me, but we're going to put them on the screen. And it says this. This is Paul's counsel to them. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Now, when he says outside, what is he talking about? Now, remember, this is a household code. In fact, when Paul was writing this letter, what he knew was, was that this letter was going to be read to an entire household. And in that time, the entire household included everybody. It was the father, the mother. It was the children, their spouses, their children. It was the servants. It was the slaves. It was everybody who lived in that household, who participated in that household. And so here's Paul, and he's writing this, and he says, walk in wisdom towards those on the outside. So the outside are those outside their household. And in that community, the people outside their household were almost all of them not followers of Jesus. If he was writing this letter to us today, what he would say is, walk in wisdom towards those who are not believers those who are not followers of Jesus. He says, walk in wisdom towards them. Now, 
Why did they need to walk in wisdom? Because in the time that Paul wrote this, Jesus' followers were often slandered by those on the outside. See, the first Jesus followers were actually called atheists because they didn't worship a God that could be seen. The first Jesus followers were called unpatriotic because they refused to go and light incense at the image of the emperor. The first um, uh, early church members were called immoral because when they gathered to meet together, they gathered in clo behind closed doors. They often gathered in secret. So if you're a Christian and you're here today, then we have to walk in wisdom today too because the same type of slander that faced Jesus' followers back then faces us today. If you turn on the news, if you talk to people who aren't Christians, the words that they use to describe Christians are words like bigots. They use words like intolerant or narrow-minded. The word most often used to describe Christians is hypocritical. And too often, because of the culture that we live in, because we don't want to rock the boat, because we don't want to cause a stir, we don't want to make any problems, we ignore the accusations. And sometimes we even pretend that we're not a Christian because we don't want to be identified with that. And if you're listening to us today, if you're listening to us online and you are not a Christian, then I need you to hear what we're talking about today because this is where I and many others have let you down. Because instead of accurately representing what it means to be a real follower of Jesus, what I and many other people who bear the name Christian have done is that we have allowed culture to tell you what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And listen, if I believed what culture said a Christian was, I wouldn't want to be a Christian either. So here is Paul, and he is recognizing that this dynamic exists in the culture and in the people that he's talking to. He knows that the people on the outside have this impression of Christians. And he says, we have to walk in wisdom. Now, in Scripture, that word walk doesn't simply mean walk like you're taking a walk. Like we walk in wisdom only when you and I are side by side walking. That word walk actually means living your life. So what he's saying is, he's saying live your life in wisdom. And then he says, towards. So live your life in wisdom. That means when you go to work with non-Christians, when you go to school with non-Christians, when you go to the marketplace with non-Christians, you live your life, but you do it in wisdom. Knowing what culture is saying about you, knowing what people think about people who say that they're Christians, walk in wisdom so that they will see that you are different from what culture says you're supposed to be. And then he says, walk towards them. Right? Walk towards them. Don't lean away. Don't hide. Don't avoid. Don't ignore you have to lean in on those conversations. You have to lean in when you hear those comments. Paul is saying it's not just enough to walk in wisdom, but far, far away from them. 
Walk in wisdom, but don't engage them. He's saying, walk in wisdom towards them. Now, for most Christians, this is a hard thing, right? Because for us, what we hope is, is that someone we know, someone who's not a Christian or has questions will come to us and they'll say, hey, I've got a question or, or, or I have something I want to ask you. And we want that to happen because it saves us from that awkward feeling that we get when we're the ones that start the conversation. But Paul is telling us that we can't do this anymore. He's saying that we have to lean in. We have to walk towards those on the outside. And then he says this, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Now, that phrase, redeeming the time, literally is translated as buying the opportunity. Buying the opportunity. Now, this is something, there, there's something that happens to me every time during the holidays. And maybe it's happened to you. There's something that you want to buy. It's, maybe it's a gift for yourself. Hopefully, it's Christmas, so it's a gift for somebody else. But you go to the store and you see it. And you want to buy it, but you think to yourself, I'll bet you this is going on sale. I'll bet you I'll be able to find it somewhere else cheaper. So you leave it alone, and you go around to other places, and you suddenly realize that the one that you saw was not only there, but it was already the best price that you could find. So you go back, and it's sold out. And now it's on eBay for $5,000. Right? So you're frustrated. And then one time you go into a store where you least expect it and you see there's one left. And it's more expensive than the one that you saw the very first time, but you're not going to wait. You're not going to hope you can get it for cheaper. You are going to buy that opportunity. You are going to go up there and you are going to grab it. And that is the feeling that Paul is trying to convey to us when he says, redeeming the time. He says when the opportunity arises, you have to be aggressive. You have to take advantage because you may never get that opportunity again. So how is it that we are supposed to walk in wisdom toward, outside, toward outsiders? And specifically, as it relates to your work or as it relates to your school, how do you walk in wisdom in your workplace? How do you walk in wisdom at your school? How do you best take advantage of the opportunity? Paul's going to go on and he's going to tell us in verse 6, he says this, let your speech always be with grace. Now that word grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, undeserved preferential treatment. Undeserved preferential treatment. When they don't deserve kindness, speak with extraordinary kindness. Not regular kindness. Extraordinarily ki extraordinary kindness. Is there anyone in your workplace or at your school who doesn't deserve kindness? And Paul is saying, you have to give them grace. So if they don't deserve kindness, then you speak to them with extraordinary kindness. Regular kindness isn't enough because regular kindness doesn't get you noticed. When they don't deserve compassion, 
then you speak to them with extraordinary compassion. When they don't deserve love, then you speak to them with extraordinary love. When they don't deserve patience, then you speak to them with extraordinary patience. Now let me tell you something. No one in our culture does this. No one does this. So when you do this, you are going to get noticed. Because in our culture, we fight back. In our culture, we use phrases like, you have to fight fire with fire. We use phrases like, you, have, you get what you deserve. But what Paul is saying is this, listen, you can do that. You can fight fire with fire. But that is not walking in wisdom. That is not being wise. That is not taking advantage of the opportunity. He's saying, if you want to make a difference in the world that you live in, in your workplace, in the lives of the people that you work with, if you want to walk in wisdom, then you have to talk to people with amazing grace, with amazing, undeserved, preferential treatment. Let your speech always be with grace. And then he says, seasoned with salt seasoned with salt. That phrase seasoned actually should say as though it was seasoned with salt. And this is something that people in that time understood and I think it's something that we look at and we think, oh, that's nice, but we don't really grasp the deeper meaning of what Paul is saying here. You see, one of the things that salt does is salt makes food taste appealing. And we all know that. We sprinkle salt on our food to make it taste better. And the great thing about this is, and, and, and you've seen this because a few years ago there was this whole salted caramel craze, but you can put salt on sweet or savory and it makes it better, right? Do you know that when you sprinkle salt on your food, it doesn't change the taste of the food? What it does is it changes how your mouth tastes the food, but the actual food itself doesn't change. And it's the same thing with the way that we talk. When we're trying to communicate something and we season it with salt, it doesn't change the message that we're trying to give. It just makes it more appealing. The other thing that salt does is, is that salt improves things that are tasteless. Now, have you ever been in a workplace or at school, been surrounded by classmates or even professors who like talking about things and telling jokes and the word that you describe it when you hear them is tasteless. Sometimes too funny, but also tasteless. I have. And one thing you hear a lot is that, or one thing that you see a lot is that in those situations, there's a tendency that you and I have to not say anything so that we can get along. To go on, laugh, smile, nod our heads, so that we can get that feeling of fitting in. When we use salty talk, it makes tasteless things taste better, even in the face of the tasteless things. Salt in that time, and even today, if you've ever had really good beef jerky, salt prevents corruption. When you speak with grace, when, you, when your talk is salty, 
it keeps you from being corrupted. Now, think about this. When you start using salty talk to people you don't know or don't like, you will start to see that without any effort, you will start using salty talk with people that you do know and that you do like. It, it na will naturally happen. So what is salty talk? Well, salty talk, first of all, is sympathetic. Salty talk is sympathetic. When you're having a conversation with somebody, are you listening to hear what they're saying, or are you listening for that pause when you can say what you want to say? Salty talk is compassionate. We all have that friend who talks way too much and is way too annoying, right? And we just want them to shut up. But you have to have compassion for them. Salty talk is compassionate. Are you humble? Salty talk is humble. Is it more important that you look good at the end of this conversation or that you're able to help that person at the end of the conversation? Salty talk is loving. There's a saying that goes, hurt people hurt people. The people who hurt you or hurt others the most are the people who are hurting the most. Sometimes I think we don't think about that. And so when someone comes at us, we want to come back fast, come back hard, fight. But the people that are hurting you the most are the ones in your life that are hurting the most. Salty talk is patient. Who is it in your life that you've given up on? That you've said it's just too much trouble to talk to them, it's too much trouble to have a relationship with them. You don't have any more patience for them. And so you're done. And the final thing is that salty talk is deliberate. It's deliberate. One of the hardest things for us to do in a conversation is to know when to shut up. That's salty talk. Paul goes on and he says this. He says, if you're going to do this, if you're going to speak with grace, if your talk is going to be salty, if you're going to use talk like this when you talk to people, he says in verse 6, that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each one. See, when you do all of this, so you will know in order that you may know how to answer each one. Listen, listen to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, if you want to know how you ought to talk, how you ought to answer people, how you ought to respond to people, then you have to talk to people with grace, seasoned with salt. That's how you do it. Is there somebody that you just can't have a conversation with because you're annoyed with them? Is there somebody who you, you, you just can't get through to them, that you two just don't get along, and you don't know how it is that you can approach them, how you can possibly talk to that person? Paul is saying, if you want to know how, you talk to them with grace, seasoned with salt. Because when the words that you choose to speak to them are salty, when the words that you choose are filled with undeserved preferential treatment, what's going to happen is, is you're going to get a response. That person is going to engage you. You are going to become connected. And because you are connected, and because you are engaged, you will come to know how to approach that person when you want to convey something to them, when you have a message that you want to tell them. Listen, parents and kids, we know this naturally. When I wanted a new car, which, by the way, I never got, but when I wanted a new car, 
How I asked my mom for that car is different from how I asked my dad, right? The words you choose, the approach you take is different because mom and dad are different people. So you use different words. The same message, I'm tired of taking the bus, I want a car, but different words. It's the same thing with my children. If I need the garbage taken out, how I talk to my son is very, very different than how I talk to my daughter. If I use the same words for both of them, one of them will be angry and not speak to me, and the other one will do it. But if I reverse it, then the reverse will happen. So how I approach them is what is important. And what Paul is saying in these verses is, is that you already know what it is you want to convey to them. Think about that. Because he's not telling us what to say. He's telling us how to say it. You already know the message you want to send. But how you say it is going to make the difference on whether or not they do it. So, practical steps. We're going to go through this quick. We're coming up to the end. Five practical steps that we can use, that you can put into practice today. First one. Always speak with grace. Speak with grace with undeserved preferential treatment. Speak with grace in every situation and do it always. Because here's one thing that I have found, maybe many of you have found, and if you're younger, it's something you're going to find. So don't wait until you get my age to figure it out. Take my word for it. When you speak to people with grace, they will want to engage you. At work or at school, there's one person there who's grumpy all the time, you never want to talk to them. There's one person there who's happy all the time, and it's easy to talk to them. Always speak with grace. Speak with grace in public as well as in private. So you have to be consistent. You speak with grace in public and private, you'll never be accused of gossiping. You speak with grace to an equal as well as to somebody who is in power, and you will never be accused of slander. Speak with grace to the poor person as well as to the rich person, and you'll never be accused of favoritism. Speak with grace with everyone. And when he says always, he means always, all the time, at lunchtime, at break time, while you're playing basketball, while you're watching a movie, while you're driving, while you're shopping, while you're... Okay, this wasn't in my notes. What is it that you do with boba? Do you drink it or do you eat it? While you're eating boba, while you're drinking boba. All right. While you're doing something with boba, speak with grace. Always means always. It's all the time, but it's also every subject. Sometimes I think we are only supposed to talk with, gra in, with grace when we're talking about something serious or something spiritual. But no, you talk with grace no matter what you're talking about. If you're talking about the weather, speak with grace. If you're talking about the economy, speak with grace. Listen, some of you, when you're talking about politics, speak with grace. When you're talking about your boss, speak with grace. When you're talking about the company that you work for or the school that you go to, speak with grace. All right? Speak with grace. Always speak with grace. Number two, don't confront, but don't retreat. Some of us retreat too much. 
When people come up to us and they say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? We'll say, well, I was busy, and then Saturday afternoon I went out and had some fun, do this, do that. And we just totally ignore what we did on Saturday morning because we don't want people to know or we don't want people to say anything or we don't want to be identified as one of those people. Listen, don't confront them, but don't retreat from it. You don't have to be right in their face, but we, you should say, when someone says, what did you do this weekend? Well, I went to church. When someone says, what are you doing on Wednesday night? Don't just say, I'm busy. Say, I'm going to a Bible study. Don't be obnoxious about it, but let people know that you're a Christian. Don't censor your faith out of your conversations. Because here's the thing, when people know that you're a Christian, it gives them permission to ask you questions that they have about being a Christian. And one thing that you're going to realize when you do this is that people are actually more interested in spiritual things than we believe that they are. And you'll be amazed when you start talking with grace and when you don't confront but you don't retreat that those doors will open. And part of that don't confront is don't try to win. There's something about our culture today where everybody has to win. You either win or you lose. Don't try to win. That's not your job. Let Jesus do the work of winning. Right? Don't try to win, but be prepared. Because the reality is, and especially where we live today, in this culture, that subculture here in the Bay Area that we live in today, if people identify you as a Christian, you're going to be attacked. It's going to happen. But if we can't show love and understanding to the people who come at us with cruelty and insult and intolerance and even injustice, then how are we able to tell them that we are followers of Jesus? Don't confront, but don't retreat. The third thing is this. Make sure your actions match your words. One of the reasons that people think we're, Christians are hypocrites is because too often we say something but we do something else. Our actions don't match our words. Now, part of that comes from this idea that many of us who grew up in church grew up with that there is a holiness, a righteousness, a, a goodness that is supposed to be like this aura that is around Christians. And especially if you've been in church your entire life, right? You're supposed to have it all together. I mean, you have got the manual for life right here. So your life should be perfect. And so what we do is, is we, we say things that aren't necessarily reflective of our life. The Barna Group is the largest uh, Christian uh, research and study organization in the United States. And a few years ago, they came out with a survey. And what they found was that on issues of morality, non-Christians compared to Christians are statistically exactly the same when it comes to issues about morality, that there's no statistical difference between Christians and non-Christians. So how we feel about premarital sex, how we feel about homosexuality, how we feel about all of these things that, that many people believe are morality issues for Christians, when they interviewed Christians, they found that there was no difference between what we believe and what non-Christians believe. So don't talk about your faith as if you've got it all down, that you know it all. I don't. When you talk about your faith, though, make sure that what you talk about is what you're living. The easiest way to do that is this. Don't ever 
talk from a perspective that you know that you've got it all together, that you fully understand. One of the phrases that Christians use the least but is so, so powerful is, I don't know. And we think we have to have an answer. And sometimes the answer is, I just don't know. Make sure your actions match your words. The fourth thing is this. Build relationships outside of work. Build relationships outside of work. <clears throat> Rick Warren has a saying, he, said, he used to say all the time, he said, uh, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And building relationships with your coworkers or building relationships with your classmates outside of work lets them know that you care about them as a person and not just as a coworker or, or as a classmate. So share lunch together. Grab supper together. Go to a Giants game together. Hang out together. But build those relationships because when you build those relationships, you build opportunities. The fifth and final thing is this. Invite them into your church community. Now, one of the things that we've seen historically, not just from the records of Scripture, but other non-scriptural records, is that the early church grew because people on the outside looked in to the community of Christian believers living together, and they saw how these crazy Christians treated each other. And they said, man, if that's how they treat each other, if that's how they love each other, if that's what it's like to be a part of that, then I want in. And that's how the church grew. So invite them into your church community. If your church friends and you are going out, invite someone from work to come along. You don't have to mention God. You don't have to talk about church stuff. Talk about normal things that normal people talk about. Because meeting normal people that are Christians goes a long way towards letting people see that Christians are normal people. And invite your co-workers to a weekend experience. Let them see what it's like for a group of Christians to gather together and take their faith seriously. Do you realize that many of your non-Christian friends have never experienced that before? Have never experienced a group of people who come together to celebrate and to worship and to acknowledge that they don't have all the answers, but there is someone that does? They've never been able to experience that. And experiencing that even once can open the door for them to ask the questions that they've always had, but they've never had a place where they could go to ask them. Jesus calls us to gather together for a reason, to experience community together as followers of Jesus but not just for the sake of our own happiness and the pleasure that we get in living life in community, but also so that our friends, our co-workers, our classmates, our relatives can look inside at what we have here and say, man, I don't understand it. And some of the things that they do are kind of weird, but I've seen how they treat each other. I've seen how they love each other. I want that.
The people that you work with matter to God. And have you ever considered that one of the reasons that God has put you in your job is so that you can break into that particular subculture that you are a part of with the gospel of grace. Think about it. Where it is that you work, if you've worked there for any amount of time, what you're going to see is that you are one of countless groups of people in our society who share so much in common with the people that you work with. You, you use the same language. You use the same phrases. You understand the same abbreviations. You all have a common field of work, a common knowledge, a common group of people that you react and relate to on a regular basis. You speak the same language. You struggle with the same issues. And you'll find that you ask many of the same questions. And the sad thing is, is that in those subcultures, where many of you spend the majority of your time, where many of you give the best hours of your life in that subculture, you may be the only person that God was able to put there to reach them. God has placed you where you are, in the job that you're in, in the company that you work for, in the shift that you are at. Because God cares so much about the people that you work with he put you there because he knows that you can make a difference in their lives. Paul would later try to help us see this in, his, in one of the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. He said it like this, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Do you know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents the king, he represents the country, he represents the culture that he is from in a foreign land. So that the people in the foreign land can watch him, watch what he does, watch what he says, watch how he speaks. And when they see him, they will be able to say, oh, now I understand his king. Now I understand his country. Now I understand his culture. Paul is reminding us that we are Jesus's ambassadors here. And in your workplace or in your school, you are Jesus's ambassador. You're his representative. And he put you there because the people you work with matter to God. He put you there because the people that you go to school with matter to God. And the realization that I hope that we all walk away from here today is that the world is not going to judge Jesus by how he acts. The world is going to judge Jesus how by, how, by how you act. The world is not going to figure out what Jesus' reputation is by based on what he does. No, Jesus' reputation will be based on what you do. And they aren't going to know who Jesus is by Jesus' words. The world, your world, your workplace, 
is only going to know who Jesus is by your words. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.